Hello, and welcome to Local Legacies, the show where we go behind the scenes with enterprising individuals who are striving for the best in their business, family, community, and themselves. I'm your host, Tim Lanza, and without further ado, here's this week's guest. All right, welcome back to another episode of Local Legacies. Today in the studio, I have someone who has been in business this year for 49 years, uh, heavily involved with the community in a lot of different ways, born and raised in Lemonster. I'd like to welcome my dad, Steve Lanza, owner and founder of Lanza Auto. How you doing today, Dad? Well, not too bad. Well, I uh, appreciate you coming down here and doing this with Jeremy and I. Uh, obviously, I've said before, I kind of based a lot of what I talk about on what the way you've lived your life, you know, what I speak to different guests about. So I feel it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about your life and tell your story. All right. Um, so why don't we start, I guess... You were going to high school, you graduated high school, you started working at United Trans. Yeah. And then uh, what happened after that? Well, what happened originally is I thought I wanted to be a photographer, a professional photographer. So a kid that I was really friendly with in high school, uh, Dave Levine, he and I went out to Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, take a photography seminar for a week. When we got out of our, I think it was our junior year of high school, and Dave's parents actually drove out to pick us up in New York, and on the way back, he, his dad was a real nice guy, Ted Levine, uh, he said to me, oh, what are you doing for the summer? And I said, well, I'm looking for a job because the only uh, where I had worked before was a place that is called the Black Sheep now in Sterling, but it was Pick's Restaurant, and I worked there in the kitchen, but they closed down. So Dave's dad said to me, well, you come down to the shop, and uh, we'll put you to work. So that's how I ended up at United Trans. He owned the place, United Trans and United Warehouse. So I ended up getting uh, a summer, what started out being a summer job there. And that's how I got exposed to, I had already always fooled around with lawnmowers and stuff like that. But this was when I got exposed to larger vehicles, uh, tractor trailers, Learned how to fix trailers, learned how to fix trucks, learned a lot about diesel engines that I didn't know before that. Uh, learned how to drive an 18-wheeler. Used to leave sometimes on Friday nights because they made a daily trip to New York, about six or eight trucks, and on Friday nights I would take a truck and be the last guy out and hopefully not have anybody broke down, but if they broke down on the way to New York, I'd be the guy stopping to fix them or figure out what was wrong. So worked a lot of hours there for not a lot of money, but I learned a lot. Uh, Steve Gallant, another high school friend of mine, ended up getting a job there also. And we were pretty much working for chump change, but we had a key to the gas pump. So that was the key to success back then. Uh, we used to... Uh, 
go to Hampton Beach two or three times a week. Of course, gas wasn't like it is now, but it was still pretty good to get it for nothing. So that's how I got involved with that. So you, at this time, you're in high school? Yeah. And then you're working there. You graduate high school? Yeah, I worked all through my junior and senior year. Well, at the summer of my junior year and all senior year. And I worked there one year after that, I believe. And then another friend of mine, Al McDonald, was working at Norton's, uh, which is St. Gobain now in Worcester. And he got me an interview down there, and I ended up getting a job there in the shipping department because I had worked in the warehouse at United, and I had some experience in expediting loads and that type of thing. So guy that was running the shipping department at Norton's had a heart attack, and I got in there, and that was about double what I was making when I was working at United. And I said, oh, Red, Red will never be back. He had a massive heart attack. And then uh, I worked there for about a year. That was a good job. And then Red came back. He came back to life and came back. So I got booted into this new department that they had. Uh, they were experimenting, manufacturing their own cardboard boxes. So we were getting raw, raw cardboard in, running it through machines to cut it and fold it to the size they needed. And I ended up basically being in charge of that department, and that lasted a, about a year because he, I was in the cellar of Plant 4. There were no windows, no nothing. And it particularly got to me in the fall. I'd get to work. It was I drove to work in the dark. And except for a half hour at lunch, I didn't see daylight, like, until the weekend. By the time I got out, it was dark out, and I just mentally couldn't handle being indoors after working outdoors for so long. And when I was at <clears throat> United, I also worked part-time for a guy, Ollie Pemerini, who is now what is Ricky's, it was Rick's dad. And I worked there weekends and nights running wreckers and towing trucks and all that kind of stuff. So I had pretty much been working outdoors for quite a number of years. And then just to be cooped up in the cellar, I couldn't take it. And now, obviously me knowing you now, that's something that you still struggle with, like seasonal depression, a seasonal affective disorder. Oh, absolutely. Go, you know, I know the winter, both with like the amount of sunlight as well as the cold, is a challenge. Yeah, it most definitely is. Uh, and so, where did things go from there? Well, when I tried to quit Norton's, uh, they gave me, which doesn't sound like much now, but. I think when I when I was gonna leave there, I was making about five fifty an hour, and the minimum wage was like a little over two dollars. So I tried to leave the first time. They gave me a dollar raise to stay, and that was like at that point I was making more money working there than my dad was making as a machinist. I was making more per hour, so I was living pretty large. I did whatever I wanted. Uh, 
went wherever I wanted. Money was really of no real factor. Um, and then I ended up starting to repair motorcycles because I couldn't stand not taking stuff apart, basically. So I'd actually go to work and swap vehicles with, I probably had a dozen motorcycles from Norton's that I worked on. I'd drive a car in, drive the motorcycle back, do what I had to do, and then the next day I'd just exchange the guy, get my car back from him. So that worked good in the summer. Obviously in the winter, not so much. Uh, but I, I found myself uh, always intrigued with how, particularly mechanical things, but how things work. Uh, and to this day, one of my favorite shows on TV is that I think it's uh, Discovery Channel and how things are made. And it, it just intrigues me, and it always has, which is why I end up a lot of times with so much shit apart at the garage because I can't just change a part. i got to take it apart and find out why it failed or at least try to figure out why it failed. And that that haunts me to this day. It just, that's out of my DNA, I guess. And so you're bringing these bikes back to the house, which is the house you grew up in. Right. Um, which is, you know, a big farmhouse on Central Street. And set back from the house is the three-bay garage. I'm assuming you were working out of there. Yeah, I'd have 30, 40 motorcycles in there all the time. I, oddly enough, I didn't repair Harleys because <laughs> I don't know why. But I did mostly all Jap bikes and some English bikes. Uh, but the problem with the motorcycles at that time, like UPS and FedEx didn't exist at the level they do now. So I had to run into Boston to get parts. Uh, Parkway Cycle and Everett. Everett or Revere. Uh, but uh, it just got to the point where... It was so difficult to get parts. There was no internet to just go on and order this, that, or the other thing like you do now. So I ended up, uh, that started getting to the point where I was spending more, t more time running around than I was actually doing something. So that business sort of morphed into air-cooled Volkswagens and Porsches because nobody around here wanted to work on Volkswagens. Uh, Kenny Derling in Fitchburg was probably about the only other one around, and uh, this guy Don Russell, who was up in Greenville, New Hampshire. Uh, and there was one other guy. Oh, I can't think of his name. But there, nobody wanted to work on foreign cars in general, but Volkswagens in particular. So I ended up with 15, 20 of them in the ad all the time. They were coming from everywhere. Why do you think that is that no one wanted to work on them? I think at that point, the old school guys uh, that I ended up working with as a young guy had this stigma about everything, first of all, was metric. And most everybody only had what they call imperial tools, which is, you know, inch fractions. Uh, and 
they like had an attitude that it was something that, that they were built differently than everything else, or then that they were built differently than domestic cars, which they were, but they still worked the same way. So I could never figure out why they didn't, nobody wanted to work on them personally, because it internal combustion engine is the same no matter what. And now these guys are mostly working on like U.S. cars, but yeah, like you said, it's you got an internal combustion engine with a carburetor at that time, so it's yeah. it's all the same principles. It, it's all the same, exactly. It's all the same principle. They all function the same way. Uh, now, with you know, starting with the motorcycles, obviously, when you were working for United Trans, I'm assuming you were being kind of taught or showed how to work on the diesel trucks, right? And then, how did you kind of learn to work on the bikes? It just sort of evolved naturally. I mean, I never went to school for it or anything like that. It just was a matter of taking things apart and figuring out how they worked. And, again, if there was a broken part or a defective part, figuring out what was what and then putting it back together. And then if it wasn't fixed, taking it apart again. <laughs> uh, but I, I always had, or at least I feel like I always had sort of an instinctive whatever to figure out what was wrong I, I found diagnosing most of the stuff came to me pretty easily uh, and I think it's because I had an understanding of physics and just the way things work yeah I yeah I've talked about this with you know other people on this show and you know particularly tradesmen but like the trades are kind of how things actually work in the real world and a lot of it is physics and like understanding those principles will give you the ability to look at things and and kind of have an idea of how this probably works. Yeah. And now you start working on the air-cooled Volkswagens, air-cooled Porsches. What was you know happening then? How old were you at that time? Oh, I was probably in my early 20s. I would say I, I would have to really sit down and figure that out, but yeah, in my early twenties. And how did the business progress from there? Well, the, now when you talk about Porsches, you're talking about hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollar cars, some of them and more. Uh, back then, they were just like an air-cooled foreign shitbox, as far as most people were concerned. Uh, you could buy a buy a, a Porsche with a blown motor for a couple hundred bucks, you know, a three fifty six or the the nine twelves and nine elevens were a little bit more money. But I know at one point I bought two nine elevens and a nine twelve from Post Road Auto Parts, which was at the time a state of the art recycling facility junkyard. Uh, I think I paid $2,500 for the three cars. And any one of those cars now would probably be worth 50 or 60 grand. So they they just were not, they were like a cult type car. They were desirable only to people that wanted one of them. Not like now, and it, it wasn't a, a prestigious thing or anything. It's just like, if that's what you wanted, that's what you wanted. And if it wasn't your cup of tea, you had no interest in it. 
Well, and the, the 356, like you were talking about, was essentially for people that don't know anything about cars, like a squash-down Volkswagen Beetle. Basically, yeah. And it was Ferdinand Porsche designed it to be like a sports car version of that. Right. They um, had a lot of the lot of the parts actually interchanged with Volkswagen. And I know you pay close attention to this stuff. What would you pay if you wanted to go out and buy a 356 now? Oh, I don't think you could buy a running car for under $60,000. And all the way up to half a million, depending on the car? Oh, some of them I've seen more than that, depending on the rarity of it. Particularly the Speedsters and the uh, Cabriolets are just bring insane money. And you had quite a few of those at one point? Oh, I probably threw away a dozen of those cars. Just junked them, threw them away. Never mind, kept the parts or parted them out. Just They were not that hard to find. And now, did you ever do anything to try to actively, like, grow your business or market or or, or bring people in to work on this stuff? Or is it just, it no, kind of evolved? No, I never actually even had a sign out on the street until uh, I got a repair plate, and that was required by law, is to have a, a sign on the roadway in front of the shop. Uh, I never advertised. I never did. People just found me, just word of mouth. I, I kind of got a reputation for being able, to, being able to fix anything. So I ended up with a lot of work that was not exactly my mainstream, but I never really said no to anybody. So even if they brought something in that was a real oddball job, I'd tell them, look, if you want to leave it, I'll fix it. I know I can fix it. It's just a matter of having time to do it. And now, at this point, had you started racing yet? That was right around that time. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I didn't, like, race SCC or anything like that, uh, or SCCA. It was more like weekend. They'd set up a, a closed course, like, back then, all your shopping centers were closed on Sunday. Uh, because of the blue laws, I'm really dating myself now, but uh, they would go to a place like Searstown and set up part of the Porsche owners of America was part of their, whatever you want to call it, their function to keep people interested in the cars. They'd set up cones and have a, a closed course in the parking lot. We used to do the Burlington Mall a lot, and uh, down toward Boston, where the malls are like twice the size of Searstown. And uh, you'd just race for a trophy, take your, drive your car there. I mean, some guys trailered their cars. I never did. I always drove whatever I was driving and drove it home after. And you were racing like 911s at the time? Yeah, 912s, 911s. That's Porsche... You know, t one of the things they tout is, like, the 911 is the only car that you can drive to the track and on the track. That's probably remains true to this day, except for except for possibly the late model Corvettes. They've really improved those cars a lot the last five years or so. And now, a as time went on, how did you, you started working on more different things and did you kind of stick with the Porsches, or what happened there? Well, the Porsches then 
began to price themselves out of the Lemonster market because it was probably still only about 25 or 30,000 people in Lemonster at that point, if that, if that many. And again, before the heyday of like digital and all these high-tech companies, everybody around here either worked in a mill or a plastic factory. So nobody was of the income level uh, I want to say 1975, a brand new 911, or maybe it was 70, a brand new 911 was under $10,000. A 912 was about 5500 and a 914 was $1,800. So, those, and back then that was a lot of money. So, I can remember, like, just to put things in perspective, Half Ford had a 427 Cobra on the showroom floor. That was 1967. Because my dad, I went with my dad. He was looking for a new car, and he was always a Ford guy. And I want to say that car was on the showroom floor for like 3,500 bucks, and that's a million dollar car now. So he probably paid 1,800 for a brand new wagon. So 3,500 bucks for a two seat car was a lot of money back in that day right and then where did the business go from there you're at this point kind of getting bigger doing more business or was it kind of an even well I probably when I was racing I probably spent half of my week fixing and getting the car ready to race I kind of got out of it because as I became more more busy fixing people's cars and getting paid for it uh, the racing thing was all negative cash flow, obviously. Uh, I became uh, less and less feasible and practical to be racing because it's not like I had a sponsor or something. I was the sponsor. So I just kind of got away from that and got more into everyday repair work. And you just kind of were taking in what you were getting brought. Yeah. And yeah. I, I never, I never really, I never really like intended to specialize in anything. And I still feel like I don't. Uh, I just fix whatever comes in. I got a reputation for specializing in foreign cars again because. When, when the Japanese cars started getting real popular, the Hondas, the Toyotas, the Datsuns, uh, a lot of the older guys just didn't want to work on them. Now, this was like a, around the time where fuel injection started to become yeah. prevalent? Yeah, well, it, it, I ended up sort of being on the leading edge of the fuel injection thing because the first mass-produced cars that were popular that used them was Volkswagens, and that's what I had been working on. So uh, it was kind of a crude system, but it was state-of-the-art at that point, you know, much like the system that's in your old 72 Mercedes. Right. You know, by today's standards, that's like might as well be a carburetor, but back then that was state-of-the-art. And did you find... Kind of similarly, a lot of the old school guys are just like... Oh, didn't uh, want to touch it. They didn't want to touch it. They, uh, Sky, it was a very good mechanic, George Ski, and George used to send everybody to me if they had a foreign car. 
the Schofields used to send me a lot of work also. They didn't really want to do foreign cars at that time. It was like, not like it is now. I mean, now there's really no foreign cars. They're, every car is built everywhere. Right. You know, you got Mercedes, uh, Honda, Toyota, all have plants in this country. So it's a world car now. It's not a foreign or domestic. Well, and then kind of going into... That, that was like, I feel like, where there was a shift going into, especially the 80s, where the quality of the U.S.-produced vehicles started to go down, and they were kind of like resting on their laurels, and all these foreign cars started to just produce better vehicles all around. Yeah, particularly the the mid to late 70s. Uh, that's when, I think, 75 or 6 was the last year for the air-cooled Beetle. Uh because even they couldn't compete with the Japanese cars because here you had a car that was cheap to run, got great gas mileage, and actually had heat. So Volkswagen sort of fell out of favor with, even with Volkswagen people because I can remember many times driving one of my Beetles having an ice scraper on the inside of the car to clear the window because they didn't really put enough heat out to do anything. They actually had a little gas gasoline-fired furnace that they some of them had under the hood, but under the, the hood as in the trunk because the engine was in the back. Uh, they had a tendency to catch on fire a lot, though, so that really wasn't the most desirable way of getting heat out of it. And then from then on, you know, you're getting busier. Where do things progress and what's kind of going on with your life uh, nothing. I was just fat, dumb, and happy doing what I like doing. And so at some point, I guess, you meet Mom? Oh, that was way after. Okay, so I guess, is there anything between where we're at now and that that... Well, I had gotten married before and gotten divorced, so I took a pretty good financial beating on that and ended up in the interim before I was married, bought a house. So when I got married, because of the mass laws, I had to buy her out of the house, even though she had nothing to do with buying it in the first place. I had to give her half of what the house was worth. And in the interim, I had gotten into pretty heavily into rebuilding wreck cars. Uh, first one late model car I did was in 76. So I had been buying and fixing cars mostly with mechanical issues that people didn't want to pay for. Uh, did a lot of motor swaps, particularly with the Volkswagens. Like I said, you could buy a VW Beetle that was in good shape with a blown motor for $100. So I was rebuilding, I'd rebuild engines six at a time. People would come in and need an engine. I'd have one done in stock. And people were blowing them because they were air-cooled, right? They were overheating them? Yeah, they were overheating them a lot. People didn't pay attention. Uh, they also didn't have all the warning bells and whistles that cars today have. Like, all they had was a little light for oil pressure and another little bulb for uh, the generator. So if anything other than... By the time the oil pressure light came on, it was too late. It was probably already a connecting rod hanging out of the bottom of the engine. So, but yeah, 
uh, it didn't have like now most of the cash shut off if you get low on oil. That didn't exist back then, and people weren't the best about maintaining them either. So, and so, what turned you on to fixing the wrecked cars? Uh, I just found that to be another very intriguing thing to do to take something that was destroyed or totaled and restore it back to the way it was before it got wrecked. And I found that that was financially more lucrative than doing the regular mechanical repair because that also was the time that uh, computers and computer systems started getting involved. And again, scanners were insane money and they really weren't that good. So it started to become more difficult to make that profitable because working by myself, I could only do one thing at a time. So it ended up becoming more attractive to fix the wrecks. And that's like a game that we're still playing to this day, right? Is like the technology is advancing faster and faster. The manufacturers are trying to keep the independence from being able to service the vehicles. Right. And you just need newer and newer technology even to be able to read. I mean, we're obviously, what we're equipped with now, we can service everything up to, you know, 20, a brand new vehicle with the technology computer system we have. But when you, when those first, the scanners first started coming out, what would you pay for one of those new? Oh, back then it was probably 500 bucks and did basically nothing. <laughs> All it, it didn't even, a lot of them didn't even read codes. They just, they were supposed to be a handheld monitor, but it, the information available was very, very limited. And it, it, you had to be able to decipher what you saw. Uh, it was almost not even a road map. It, it was just very limited. But at this point where, uh, you know, electronics are becoming more and more involved, you know, you're someone who has a very strong reputation for diagnosing electrical issues. So how did that come to be? Well, most of my real learning on the electrical was from uh, rebuilding the wrecks because I made sure that everything worked before the car left. And I did quite a few cars actually that had burnt. So when you start replacing whole wiring harnesses, uh, you kind of learn how, you learn how things work and, and why things happen and how to find specific problems. So I did an awful lot of wiring work, and that was another thing that I kind of got a reputation for because a lot of the other shops didn't want to do wiring work. So they'd send it to me. And you're, you know, I've obviously seen pictures of some of the cars you worked on, but a lot of them were, like, toasted right down to the shell pretty much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably not the brightest thing to do, but I found it very challenging, and that's sort of what made my motor run. And, you know, I, I feel like having heard stories in the past and where you were at in your life, say the amount of money you had at the time, you were able to, you were buying the cars that were like the most fucked up because they were cheaper 
and then you were able to put your skill into them to bring them back to a value right where they would be as basically a new car right and you so i'm assuming at some point along the way is when you got the you had gotten a frame machine you started pulling pulling frames and doing like the like real deal collision repair on those yeah well when i when i got the first easy liner that i had uh i was able to do some pretty heavy collision work but i never did it like for the most part i didn't do it for insurance companies i did some insurance work here and there but mostly just for regular customers much like we do now um and insurance companies have never really paid sufficiently so i tried to stay away from them but uh I ended up having to get rid of the frame machine, the first one that I had when I got divorced, because it was either going to be keep the frame machine or keep the house I had bought. I couldn't afford both. So I figured the frame machine was... I needed a place to live. I didn't really want to spend my life on my mother's couch, so the frame machine went, and I hung on to the house. And now, just speaking of... Not so much spending your life on the mother's couch, but just like family in general throughout this whole time, you're operating out of the garage that's next to the house you grew up in. Right. Um, your parents are living there this whole time, and then you've got, you're the youngest of six. Yeah. And you got family like in and out. All the time. At that time, uh, your Aunt Marilyn lived away she lived in east douglas and your aunt judy lived out near amherst uh, but everybody else uncle peter was on the cape for a while but everybody else was in and out all the time nephews nieces and you always say to me that you know every business is a family business whether you whether you want it to be or not pretty much yeah and i feel like that is i mean to this day cousins aunts uncles siblings are in and out of the garage or around like on a daily basis pretty much yeah but i feel like you know you're the youngest of all the siblings and even to this day pretty much everyone turns to you when something's wrong or something's got to be fixed yeah well after being in business for 50 years you meet a lot of people and a lot of stuff I can't do myself, but I know somebody who can. So that those are all connections that basically come through the business or come from the business. A lot of these people, uh, electricians, excavators, plumbers, people I've done work for or people I know through working for people they know. So you end up making your own little connections or whatever. And you've done, like, throughout your career, a lot of, you know, bartering for work or trading. You do a job for someone else, they do a job for sure. you. And obviously you've also kind of established a reputation for yourself. Yeah. So I feel like when people, it's a lot, I mean, it's opened a lot of doors for me being your son and being having those connections and being able to get basically whatever done that I need done. Yeah. Well, that's, and the longer you, you know, anybody can do that regardless of what they do for a living. But, uh, 
everybody needs a mechanic sooner or later, no matter what they do for a living. Sooner or later, anything mechanical you own is going to break. It's just the nature of it. And again, the fact that I could fix anything led to a very wide array of peop meeting people of many different walks of life. You know, doctors, lawyers, dentists, whatever. And when did you start getting involved with the trade school? Oh, boy. A long time ago. I did not go to the trade school myself, but uh, a very good friend of mine that I went to school with, Don Tucker, was running the auto body shop there. And he's the one that actually got me roped in because the auto repair, as opposed to the body and mechanical repair shop, they were looking for people in the trade to come in on the advisory board. So Donnie sort of volunteered me to do it, and I got involved, and I got kind of hooked. So it ended up, again, being a very, for lack of a better word, fulfilling adventure for me because I met a really lot of nice kids and some great teachers. And then I ended up kind of getting friendly with people in the culinary department because I got a big mouth and like to talk to people. Uh, printing department, the graphic arts, uh, the plumbing department. I mean, I pretty much at that time ended up meeting most everybody in the, in the school as far as teachers go. Uh, so, yeah, I, I found that very, again, very rewarding thing to try to help as far as uh, securing finances for some of the stuff that the school needed. Uh, when Marilyn Fratarelli was the superintendent, she was very, very aware of the needs of the trade school, and, and she did very well by the school. Uh, Tony Bent, when he was, he was an interim superintendent, he was very good, really saw a lot of value in the trade school. And a, a lot of the educators below the high school level don't see to this day, I think, don't recognize uh, the value of the trades. And now that it's becoming more and more popular with this STEM program that they talk about, uh, people are starting now to see the need for the trades because nobody can get anything fixed anymore. I mean, you call even a carpenter now and they'll They'll tell you it'll be two, three months before they can get to you. Same plumber if it's not a, an emergency. I mean, obviously, you know what we went through to find a plumber. Right. Uh, that's the way it is with all the trades now because the, the stigma that the educational system has put on trade people ended up being, even in my day, my parents wanted me to go to college because nobody wanted to be in the trades. And I stayed in college courses all through high school, which is why I didn't go to the trade school, because the uh, advisors, I don't know what you call them, 
your career advisors in junior high convinced my parents that I was too smart to go to the trade school, so I've been in trade for 60-some-odd years. So that's guidance counselors. Uh, a lot of the guidance counselors, if kids are struggling with math or science or reading, will say, send them to the trade school, not knowing or not realizing how technically advanced all the trades have become. And, you know, if you can't read. You're not, you don't belong in a trade school in this day and age. I mean, think about how many times in the course of the day when you're working on something, you've got to go read something because everything's not available on YouTube or whatever. You still need to be able to process that information. Well, that's, you know, anybody who's been to our shop before, the entire back wall of the building is books, repair mm. manuals, starting, you know, stuff you have from like the 1920s all the way up to what they stopped producing in like in the mid 80s when they went to a digital or 90s. 2000, I think, 99 or 2000 was the last year they made printed material. And it's all reading. Ever, all the technical information, all the data is either reading and deciphering numbers, specs, you know, wiring diagrams. Yeah. And, you know, I have the advantage of getting to learn from you, getting to learn from that data that we have, we've paid for or have now, and YouTube and online and Google and searching all that stuff. But you did all this with no you know, without that, without you, you had some of the books, obviously, and you acquired them along the way, but you just taught yourself everything. And Right. Well, back then, there was no going on YouTube and looking to see what somebody else did to correct the problem. You had to take stuff apart and actually figure out how it worked. And I think that's obviously why you've developed just an absolutely incredible skill set for diagnostics and figuring this stuff out was like having to learn it with no assistance. Well, you understand how things work. So when you have a symptom, you know there's only so many things generally, except when it comes to a computer, you never know. But uh, there's only so many things that will cause a particular symptom. So the, the more broad-based uh, things you do helps you like almost in every aspect of diagnostics. So... Uh, but there's no substitute for taking it apart and seeing how it's made and why it failed. Now, how did your life and the business change when I came into the picture and when Jeremy came into the picture? Well, before you guys came into the picture, uh, I was involved with this woman who had a son that I became very friendly with that we refer to as your brother, Eric. Uh, that really changed me profoundly because it was probably the first time in my life that I ever started to consider uh, somebody other than myself first. So that sort of was like a, a preemptive thing before you guys came along because I had at the point that I met your mother just sort of resigned myself to... I'll probably never have kids, and it really didn't bother me because I always considered Eric to be my kid, even though he's not my biological son. Uh, 
for many years we did everything together, went everywhere together, went to a whole bunch of Patriots games. Uh, we just did everything together. He'd come hang out at the garage, uh, built several cars for him while he was going to school that, so he could commute back and forth to school. So it, it that changed me a lot. And then when you guys came along, obviously it became a 24-7 deal with Eric. He'd generally go home at night, most nights. Uh, so it, he wasn't my... Uh, I didn't have to worry about him at night. He'd go home to his mother. But with you guys, it was... 24-7. So basically, I, I obviously, selfishly, only thinking of me, skipped over Eric, but you were dating his mom. He was obviously already around, became an important part of your life. Then you and his mother split, and when mom came along, Eric was already, you know, essentially your son. That was my, fa my family, my immediate family, uh, was me and him. Um, so you meet mom... You guys had planned to have kids? Not really. It really never came up. Just, just happened. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know if it was you or mom that told me a story that she came down to the garage and said, like, well, I hope you love me because I'm pregnant. And you said, yeah, okay. That's so yeah. I got to get back to work. Yeah. I mean, that pretty much was it. It wasn't. Uh, never entered my mind into not following through with her pregnancy or her not following through. I mean, if she had decided to do that, uh, it probably wouldn't have been much I could have done about it, but I was more than happy to accept the responsibility because it was part of my responsibility. And you, you know, I, I've repeated this many times on this podcast and in other places but you know mom was working full-time as a teacher she had health care and other benefits you two decided that you would stay home with us during the day yeah well it was multiple reasons um for that the main one was that i did not or we i shouldn't wasn't just my decision did not, we weren't big believers in daycare and having somebody who is a relative stranger being in charge of your kid for eight or 10 hours a day. Uh, and the cost of daycare is much worse now, obviously, but the cost of it back then, it was like me working all day long would probably just about pay for the daycare. So what was the sense of working just to turn around and hand that money out to avoid taking care of you guys? Whereas when she'd get out of work at 2.30 or 3 o'clock or whatever, at the time she was working in Bill Ricca, so she had travel involved also, uh, she'd get home and I'd go to work doing my repair work because one of the benefits of the business is that I could repair stuff in the middle of the night and nobody cared as long as this stuff got fixed. It was not like a retail store business where, you know, who's out at midnight looking to buy something. Uh, so 
it just, I adjusted my schedule and luckily I had a good solid customer base that understood what was going on and they adjusted their schedules accordingly. I don't think, I can't say I think I, I know of one customer that I lost because I started working at night instead of during the day. The only problem I would have would be getting parts because most of the parts stores closed at five. Not like now where they're open, some, some are open till eight, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever. Uh, so I had to be a little more proactive or whatever about making sure that I had what I needed to get through the jobs I had to do at night and subsequently ended up stocking a lot of parts myself. So I knew I had just gotten a old, I think it was a 385, they called it, computer, which uh, is, doesn't even have the computing power of your telephone today. But um, I made a list of all the vehicles I worked on and most, most likely failed parts, and I used to stock those parts. So if something came in at 4 in the afternoon, I probably had what I needed, things like brake drums, brake pads, brake shoes. Uh, I could do that job because I had the stuff on the shelf. And what was your life like at this time, like mentally, physically, emotionally? Was this challenging to be working at night and then have to deal with us during the day? Not really. It didn't bother me. I mean, I, I really enjoyed... I enjoyed having you kids around. I enjoyed having you there and spending time with you. I mean, you guys probably don't even remember. We used to just ride around during the day looking for the al letters of the alphabet on street signs. Uh, it just, and then as you both got a little bit older, I, I don't know if you remember this, I used to take you to the junkyards with me to get pots and everything. And I think that that's probably... It's obviously a unique situation, and yeah, it's helped. nothing I could have done if I had a regular job. That's for sure. You know, it it created this strong bond between you and I and Jeremy, um, being so involved. And I think that probably developmentally it helped both of us, like you said, versus having a stranger in charge of us all day, having you know, a parent. I I never really looked at any of that, and I still don't, as being like a babysitter. I, I never looked at it as being like doing daycare or whatever. It was just, was like part of my job. You know, it wasn't just go sit in a corner. I mean, you guys, except for mealtimes, you very rarely watch TV. You know, you watched, we watched a lot of Disney movies, but uh, it, I was never a proponent of sticking you in front of a TV and letting you <laughs> drone out doing that. I mean, we did something every day. And even when you went to school, of course, my work hours changed then because you were in school, but uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I never missed a single school event, athletic event, anything that you guys did. So, I mean, to me, that was, I was living a good life. And, so and I can honestly say there's not any of it that I regret or wish I had done differently. 
You guys probably do, but I don't. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And along those lines, you know, where I guess we're fast forwarding a little bit, the business itself at this time is kind of similar, you, you know, as far as like what you're doing on a daily basis and whatever. But fast forward and up to high school, I start playing football, Jeremy, shortly after, you know, that's always been a huge interest or passion of yours. And you end up starting to coach kicking for us. Yeah. Co- you know, we're working with the coaches and co- coaching kicking. Right. And so what what was that like? Uh, well, it was interesting because uh, in the beginning, nobody was doing anything regarding any kicking or punting as far as the people that were running the show there. And uh, Adrian Mascarenas asked me if I could help him. And I'm like, I don't know anything about it, but I'll find out if that's what you want to do. I not standing here with my fingers up my ass to, just to watch. So I bought uh, two or three books on kicking and uh, one particular book right off the top of my head. I can't think of the guy's name, but he was a classmate of Bill Belichick's at uh, Phillips Andover, uh, The Physics of Football. And the guy is like, a nuclear physicist in real life, Gay, I believe his last name is. Uh, I, I learned an awful lot about that, kicking, reading that book, uh, although that's not all he covers. He just covers all the aspects of football and how physics enter into altering some of the things that happen. Uh, another book I bought by Ray Guy, as opposed to Gay, uh, probably the best punter that ever lived. Learned a lot there, and I tried to pass that along to the kids that I worked with. Uh, I don't think I was exactly welcomed with open arms by the powers that be there because I was a little outspoken about some of the other things that were going on, but be that as it may, and then I got approached by somebody to go down to Pop Warner and start a bit of a program there. And most of the guys down there, most of the, and they were all volunteers that were coaching, really didn't have, see any value in it because there's not much kicking done at that level. Uh, But this one particular guy that I got very friendly with thought it was a great idea, and uh, we ended up, with two or three kids who after went along through Pop Warner ended up being pretty good players at the high school level and uh, actually got a couple kids accepted into college with not full boat scholarships but with a little bit of help because they could do it. And, you know, I guess... Two things I see here is one that I, you know, I share, and I think Jeremy shares this from you, and we do the same exact thing. Is like we become interested in something and then just kind of dive into it. Yeah, well, you get sort of that OCD thing that I have that it becomes an obsession, and always trying to strive to be as good as you can be at whatever you're doing. 
And the other thing I think, and this goes back to the trade school, you know, your relationship with Eric, the time you spent with Jeremy and I, and then football, it's like you really have a passion or a drive to like teach other people, help other people. Yeah. I mean, that's to me just part of being a good human being because uh, probably of all the teaching and instructing and everything I've got done, I never got paid for any of it. I did it for the love of doing it. So, uh, and again, I think that's just part of being a good human being. If I got something to offer that I think can help somebody else, I try to do that. And I think around two, now moving forward a bit, you know, I graduated high school in 2011. 2013 was when you got sick? Yeah. So what happened there? Been would have been uh, nine years ago. I think it was eight, eight years in November, I believe. Uh, well, I ended up, sort of a convoluted story, but I had a chimney liner put in at the house for the wood stove, and the guy didn't install it correctly, and I ended up getting carbon monoxide poisoning, which then ended up translating into congestive heart failure. And that was pretty much it. And they did actually put me on a heart transplant list because they thought my heart was so badly damaged that I would never, I'd never recover. And as Dr. Charles Dow, uh, at the time, Beth Israel Hospital, uh, said he'd never seen a heart as damaged as mine cardiologist uh, that anybody came back from. So it was looking pretty grim there for a while. And, you know, part of that is because usually if you've got congestive heart failure, it's from smoking or obesity or some of these other contributing factors, whereas you had none of that, and it was actually an external acute episode. Basically, yeah. But there was a problem with the, the boiler at the garage too, right? That the was furnace? before that. So, but it ended up being within a year and a half you got carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, I poisoning. actually got it the first time at the garage from the furnace. The heat exchanger in the furnace was cracked, and I didn't know it. So the first time I got it was there, and uh, that was probably three years before the second event. And the second event was obviously so severe. Well, t talk a little bit about... You know, one one story in particular, I guess, you know, Chris, your friend Chris Arario talks about when he came to the garage on a Saturday afternoon or Saturday morning. Yeah, I was just sitting there, and I told him that was after the second time. Uh, I told him, I said, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm really in trouble here. I said, I can't breathe. And I was really struggling just to breathe. And then I went to a cardiologist in Lemonster who will remain nameless that basically mishandled my situation so badly, I think, that uh, that contributed to the extended period of time I ended up being sick. Because as soon as I went into Boston, they were like, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not the doctor. And uh, that's the way that went. But that damage had been done. And as Dr. Dow said to me, uh, 
through no fault of your own, you've got permanent damage here. He said, you know, I can make you better, but I can't fix you. But he came about as close as you could come, I think. Well, and what, well, I guess what I was referring to with the story with Chris was with the torch. Oh, yeah, I was trying to breathe oxygen, pure oxygen, out of my cutting torch because that was the only way I could breathe. I couldn't, I couldn't breathe if I was laying down or sitting down. There was a couple nights I actually fell asleep standing up uh, with the slider cracked in the kitchen, just cracked open enough to get cold air in because that's the only way I could breathe. And they, doctors in Lemonster just kept dicking around and dicking around, and nobody could figure out what was wrong. And then sort of on a lark, I went to uh, my regular doctor when the, I felt like the cardiologist wasn't helping and said, do you think there's any chance I could have this? And he says, well, we've checked everything else. We might as well check that. And my numbers were like through the roof. Uh, with the carbon monoxide numbers, because as it turned out, they didn't even check that properly in the hospital the first time. Uh, through a technical series of events, they misread what they had done and they had done it improperly in the first place so when I went back the second time I actually got a phlebotomist that knew how to check it properly and they were like flabbergasted that I was even walking well I remember uh the yeah the doctor or whoever saying to you like how did you get here and yeah, that was Dr. Dow. And you said, oh, well, you know, I, I drove here or whatever. I, w I was driven. And he was like, no, how did you get into my office, like, on your own two feet? Yeah. And now what's happening from a medical perspective, and correct me if I get this wrong, but basically carbon monoxide, you breathe it in, and then it bonds to your red blood cells as if it were an oxygen molecule. And it binds to it permanently or longer well, it binds to it until your blood has cycled through your marrow actually a couple times. They say 30 days, but it's more like 60 or more, depending on how, what shape you're in to begin with. So it blocks the oxygen from it, being able right. to... So you're basically, it's like you're not, you're breathing air, but the oxygen isn't going into your body. It's not getting to where it belongs. And then what happens is your heart, tries to compensate for the lack of oxygen so your heart starts to swell up because it, it's not getting the volume of oxygen it, it needs. And then it starts to beat faster for the same reason. It, it's trying to compensate for the lack of oxygen. And what ends up happening is your resting heart rate increases dramatically and your heart swells up. And people who have smoked for any length of time, the heart muscles become, uh, they lose their elasticity. So if the situation gets corrected, the heart's still swollen, and that's where the congest congestive heart failure comes in. And Dr. Dow had said probably the only reason that I was able to recover is that I never smoked because my heart actually shrunk back down to the size it was supposed to be. It took over a year, but it did it. And he gave you a nickname, right? 
Yeah, he called me Lazarus because he said I came back from the dead. <laughs> and you were not working, obviously, at all at this time for, no. what, seven months? I didn't work for seven months, yeah. And then eventually you basically, it, in my eyes, and a lot of people in our family, I think, have said this and would agree, you, you basically willed yourself to live because you were too stubborn to die. Pretty much, yeah. And so when you came back to work, what was that like? Well, I only worked, when I first came back, I'd only worked a half hour or so, and then I'd have to go into your grandmother's and sit down. A lot of times I just fell asleep because uh, I was so exhausted. I mean, the least little bit of physical activity just took it right out of you. So that, that probably went on for close to another year that I, I really couldn't work a full day, but I'd go do what I could do. And again, I don't know how, but I really didn't lose many customers during that whole time. And people were very, very patient with the fact that I couldn't get stuff done in a timely fashion. Uh, so I guess that's a testimony to good customers. Well, I think it's a testimony to you. Not you know it is it is good customers and you still have most of those customers and they are great but it's I think more of a testimony to you who you are as a person and the way you've run the business. Yeah, well, I'd like to think that was part of it at least. And then moving forward a little bit more, I end up coming home from college. Well, not really from college, but I had gone to college. You never wanted me to be involved with the business. Um, and then fast forward a few years later, and I, I come back to work with you at that same time that I'm getting involved. Uh, mom had fallen and torn her shoulder. Yeah. Right? And you're at the doctor's with her, kind of going through the symptoms of she's got a torn rotator cuff, and you were thinking was similar to how you were feeling. Yeah, well, I was having, I had been having and still do some, a lot of issues with my shoulders, uh, just being worn out. And I ended up going to the same doctor that repaired her shoulder to get x-rayed, and he told me, he says, I'd be a lot more concerned about your neck than your shoulders. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I can see in the x-ray of your shoulder the... Uh, base of your neck, you, there's no cartilage left there. He says, it's all, it's a mess. So he sent me to a spine specialist, and that guy wholeheartedly agreed. So what I did is always go back to my fallback guy. I called Dr. Dow, and he recommended a spine surgeon that he knew, uh, Dr. Brian Kwan. So I went to see him, and he goes, well, he goes, it's bad, but I don't think it's bad enough to operate on. And then I went back about a year and a half later, and he said, because I was having more pain, and he said, yeah, he goes, uh, you definitely got to address this now. So I ended up going in and getting six vertebrae at the base of my neck uh, fused, and he put some metal apparatus in there, and uh, luckily, it ended up all being good afterwards. 
And also just going back real quick to the shoulder thing that that doctor said, not that your shoulders were fine, right? No, no. He said my shoulders were beyond being repaired. He goes, you're looking at a replacement. Uh, He goes, there's nothing I can do for you. But the neck was worse than that. Right. And now this is a result of just what you've done for a living for the past 60 years. Pretty much, yeah. He said it's normal wear and tear that he sees in a lot of trade people, not just automotive people, but trade people in general. He said uh, neck and knee problems. And on a daily basis, what would you say like your level of pain is that you're in? Well, today it's about a nine, I can tell you after what we've been doing for the last two days. But uh, normally, I'd say between 5 and 7. And on a scale of 10. You know, despite that today, well, this whole week you've been working on it, but you're doing an engine swap in the driveway. Yeah, which is something I wouldn't normally do. But but you, why are you doing it? Well, I'm doing it, obviously, you know, I'm doing it for your cousin. And... Mm, that same cousin is painting the house and the garage Yeah, as you're doing this yeah. engine swap in the truck. You're doing the swap with one of your best friends. Yeah. One of your other best friends is striping, pinstriping a car that's going to be your convertible for the summer. Yeah. And I'm working on a customer's vehicle, and Jeremy's working on the other side of the driveway, putting the car together, his car, that he had hit a deer and repairing it. Right. So it's kind of a unique situation that we have here on any given day and really like a tight group of friends and family. Yeah, and I think that's part of... uh part of what makes self-employment interesting uh, sometimes it can be a real pain in the ass, too, but uh, almost the fact that you don't know what you're going to do from one day to the next a lot of times. You don't know what's going to happen, but that's part of what keeps it interesting. And you started, we haven't talked about this yet, but you had started a project qu- quite a while ago um, that you had been paying for as you went, um, not wanting to take on debt, and then Obviously, with what happened with your heart, it made sense that you didn't want to have a payment, but we're working on finishing up our new shop. Right. Um, And, you know, that should be done by the end of this year. And it's hopefully thanks to you. I mean, you were bringing in gravel to pour the floor in a wheelbarrow with a shovel in a wheelbarrow. Yeah. You know, you've done 90 percent of what's done in that building. You've done yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think it's... That's why it's taken so long. And also why there's no debt on it. Right. Um, and it's kind of a testament to everything you've been building towards and next year being the 50th year of you being in business and that building will be done. Yeah. Well, it's a testament for not knowing, not being smart enough to quit when you should. I think <laughs> sometimes the way I feel. Um, and... You know, with us now being able to work together, it's kind of, you know, in my eyes, I mean, just the fact that, like, we're sitting here right now, Jeremy's sitting over there doing the sound and the production for the podcast, and we're sitting here having this conversation, but it's lucky 
and special, and I'm very grateful that we get to do what we do on a daily basis. Yeah, I've kind of always felt that way, uh, even before you kids were even around, that I, that I was... I've never, ever liked the business part of the business, but I love repairing stuff. I love being able to diagnose something and fix it, and I don't care if it's a lawnmower. I don't care if it's a cigarette lighter, uh, which is, again, the reason why we end up a lot of times with so much shit around the garage is because people will bring anything if it's broken because they know it can, I can fix it. And it becomes a hindrance sometimes, but it's also a source of a lot of pride for me of having that reputation and having a reputation of people don't think they're getting cheated. I had a guy call a couple weeks ago to get something done, and he goes, my grandfather said you're the most trustworthy car guy he's ever met in his life. That means a lot to me. That means a lot more to me than making money doing it. I mean, obviously, you need the money, but uh, the, the, I take a lot of pride in that. And with that being said, you know, after everything we've talked about, you as a, as an individual person, as, your, as a business owner and a mechanic, as a father, a friend, husband, how do you want to be remembered or think that you will be remembered? Well, I don't know how I will be, but... Uh... The, the thing that I take the most pride in is being part of the upbringing of three kids that are productive, honest, hardworking people. That's, that's what I consider to be my biggest legacy or, or my best legacy because uh, all the money and all the whatever your reputation, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to talk about, it means jack shit when you're dead. You know, uh, he was a nice guy. Well, that's great to hear, but uh, I, I'm, I'm more proud of the fact that uh, when somebody tells me, boy, you got great kids, you know, to me that's more of a re reflection of your life than uh, than anything else, you know. Oh, geez, the guy built a mansion. Yeah, big deal, you know. Uh, but I, even to this day, I get so many compliments about the three of you boys that it just makes me very proud and makes me feel like all the bullshit that I've been through and put up with, the illness and all that, it's all worth it, you know. As opposed to when I hear people talk about other people's kids and say, ah, the kid's a douchebag, you know. Well, never going to hear that about one of my kids. I know that. So it, that makes me very happy. And, you know, as my grandmother used to always say, you come into the world bare-ass, you're going to go out bare-ass. So the rest of it really doesn't matter. Well, I think, you know, that's a great place to leave it for today. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come down and talk about all this stuff. You know, I just want to say, I've said it before, but, you know, you are absolutely my hero, and I love you very much. I love you guys, too. So thank you again for coming down. I, right. I can't wait to put this out. Okay. Thanks for having me. 
And thank you, Jeremy, for your hard work. Thank you for tuning in with us. We do this to share the stories of some of the incredible individuals in your community. All we ask in return is if you found value from this episode, please share it with someone else who may also gain value from the show. Please feel free to rate or review the show. Your feedback helps us give you more of what you want. Until next time, I'm Tim Lanza, and this was another Local Legacy. Legacy.